0: Of the athletic, on this episode, it's all about that upgrade. We take a look at some of the best and most memorable driver upgrades in recent history, and explain how they've shaped the landscape of today's NASCAR. But first, as always, this is episode fifty-eight of Positive Regression. This is the Johnny Allen edition. David, another deep dive into the archives, but uh, Johnny Allen is one of those pieces of NASCAR trivia because he is on the list of one-time winners in series history. He got that win at Bowman Gray, a great place if you've never been, and he did it in a number 58 car. But, David, that was not his only piece of fame.
1: Uh, No, actually, on the Bowman Gray win, just seconds after winning that race, he crashed the car uh, right after taking the checkered flag and flew over. The wall. He was uninjured, but this sort of lived up to his life philosophy, which is if I didn't win, I was going to be spectacular. And that's kind of why I gravitated towards Johnny for, for this episode. Uh, just an interesting person in NASCAR history. Two more things about Johnny Allen. He was actually the driver who crossed the finish line first in the inaugural race at Bristol in 1961. However, he did so as the relief driver for Jack Smith. Now, Smith relinquished the car while holding a three-lap lead on the the rest of the field. So saying that Smith didn't deserve the win and we should be honoring Johnny Allen, I'm I'm not going to go that far. But Smith uh was getting overheated in the race and uh Johnny Allen's car had caught on fire earlier <laughs> in that race. He got out, he was fine and got in the car. Ford Smith in reserve and good on Jack Smith because he split the race winnings with Allen and that came out to be a little over $1500. They're going to go to sizzler after that <laughs> one. Uh, but but that was at the 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 first the first ever Race at Bristol, 500 grueling laps. I'm sure that you can believe that. The other thing about Johnny Allen is that he was kind of sort of banned from full time NASCAR participation in 1959 Hmm. and 1960 because he wanted to compete in USAC. And this was the height of NASCAR and USAC's rivalry. There was a point in time where members of the France family were not allowed on a USAC uh, property during an event and when he went to NASCAR he he basically hat in hand asked for permission to compete in USAC uh, both in stock cars and in midget cars NASCAR told him he would have to pay a hefty fine if he wanted to return so he didn't run many NASCAR races in 59 and 60 uh, because he had the audacity to compete in a rival racing series. American auto racing in the late 50s and early 60s apparently operated a lot like pro wrestling in the <laughs> mid 90s territory and uh and johnny allen was here to to prove that uh rule so interesting you know
0: we're almost through the 50s in these numbers and wh- why do you think that we have to dig so deep i mean these these numbers in the 50s are just not as popular or uh, have historic you know stats as some others what, what, what's up with the 50s and maybe even the 60s when we get there
1: yeah, these are like the offensive line numbers <laughs> yeah, they that we're getting are. into. Yeah, yeah, that's what right. <laughs> Like these these aren't these aren't really wanted, right? I think maybe that's the case. But uh fortunately I've looked o i have looked looked uh, down the list and I've seen some names that that pop up and say, okay, those are those are gonna be some decent ones to discuss. But the the reason that I, I just like Johnny, he does have the win. I mean he has some bona fides, but also just like, it, just an interesting character. Like this happened. This was just this weird guy in this moment in time. Uh And you know what? Why not? We, we got episode 58. Might as well celebrate Johnny Allen.
0: Absolutely. I mean, they, they may be uh, kind of strange or not often used numbers, but I have learned a lot by by doing these uh kind of in-depth things into these car numbers. So yes, this has been 50, number 50, this is episode 58 <laughs> of Positive Regression, the Johnny Allen edition. I hope you learned something. We'll keep it up. All right, let's get to it. David, uh, for The Athletic, you put together a great article about upgrades, driver upgrades specifically, about uh, moves that say in the last 20 years or so where teams have gone from one driver to another – and certainly found an upgrade in talent, in performance, in what have you. You put together a list of 20. It was great. I encourage everyone to go read it. We're going to talk about five of those because you were kind enough to let me choose five that I wanted to get a little more interest in and uh, discuss a little further. So before we start with my five, just where did you come up with this idea? Is this something that's been on your mind that some of these have stood out to
1: you? Oh, well, for sure. I, you know, I, I think back to uh, some of these recent upgrades that we've come across. Like, just think that Kyle Bush's predecessor in the number 18 car was at one point JJ Yaley, right? And that, that isn't a knock on Yaley. He's managed to string together a career in which he is making money driving race cars, but to think that he was dispatched for probably a driver who's going to be an all-time great is interesting. So I didn't know whether that would be the biggest upgrade in recent history, ones that I was able to quantify. So I looked at all of them, everyone that I could find. I actually canvassed some other writers just to make sure that I didn't miss any. And I didn't. Everyone was uh, taken into account, ranked as a top 20. I quantified it based on the upgrade in production from the former driver's final season to the first three seasons in which the new driver uh, produced in his new ride, and lo and behold, we have a top 20, and we'll talk more about that Kyle Busch upgrade, but turns out that wasn't actually the biggest upgrade of the last 20 years.
0: Yeah, that, it's certainly one of my five, we'll get to it. But yeah, I just wanted to make that clear. I mean, this isn't just David's opinion that he came up with in, in this article. I mean, this is quantifiable data that uh, David went through to really show you what the biggest upgrade was over the last few years. So uh, we'll, we'll get to it. So I, again, I picked out five of these. Uh, first one, David, was uh, 2017, Stuart Haas Racing upgrades from Tony Stewart to Clint Boyer. Now I picked this one just because... It's, it's Tony Stewart, you know, a hall of famer, three time champion, one of the best to ever do it. And, you know, we talk so much about age and performance decline, but just the notion, I think some would say of, you know, how do you, how do you replace a legend, right? How do you upgrade from a legend? But then I try to balance that with every athlete has his or her day. And certainly on the back end, you're, you're not the, the top performer that you once were. But it struck me that going from Tony Stewart to Clint Boyer just a few years ago was indeed an upgrade.
1: Yeah, and there's, there's two things to consider here. The first is where Tony Stewart was at during this point in time. His last few seasons in the Cup Series, objectively, they were bad. And I know he had that significant injury competing, uh, uh, from competing in a sprint car race. He sat out some races. Uh, he had the, was it the dune buggy accident yep, in the in desert? Dad, yep. Yeah. Okay. So, There were, there were some, some rough spots for him in those final years, but I've, I've I've quantified it here. His peer in 2015 actually went negative. It was a minus 0.083. And in 2016, his final season, he did win at Sonoma. So that helped raise his production rating to a 0.556. But if we completely omitted Sonoma, uh, his peer across the remaining 26 races he ran that season shrinks to a 0.154. So Stuart Haas racing at that time, they were in contention for championships. I mean, Kevin Harvick was certainly having a field day uh, against the Cup Series field, but they were not getting good production out of Stuart and uh Alan actually I have a, a a good story in 2015 I was asked by Athlon Sports for their preseason magazine the one that you see on uh newsstands and in grocery stores before every season they asked me to rank the top 25 drivers in advance of the season I did not include Tony Stewart Whoa. and my <laughs> my editor emailed because he thought I forgot about him <laughs> and I said no, I didn't forget about him. <laughs> it's so and, then, and then he and then he told me, Well, you're the only one of our writers who didn't include him. Well, guess what? He ranked 45th in peer that year and finished 28th in the point standings. Nowhere you can measure him as a top 25 driver. So that was that was kind of where Tony Stewart was at that time. But also, let's consider when Stuart Haas hired Clint Boyer. It was in advance of his age 38 season. And the the three years after that, 38, 39, 40, that is the apex for a Cup Series driver. So it stands to reason you have a driver in the winter of his career struggling. You trade him in for a driver at the peak of his career. Now, if we looked at their careers in total, of course, Tony Stewart's career um, You can't compare Clint Boyer's career to that, but just looking at these pockets of each of these drivers' careers, of course it makes sense. It just sounds so strange because this is Tony Stewart. He is a Hall of Famer. We we think of all of these wins, all of these highlights uh, from watching him, but yeah, I mean, on paper, it was an upgrade, and in hindsight, it makes all the sense. It really does. And
0: it's good to have your numbers and your perspective on that. All right, next up on the list, we go to 2005, David. Roush Racing upgrades from Jeff Burton to Carl Edwards. This one on your list struck me because Jeff Burton left just as he was entering his statistical prime for most drivers, right? Age 39. This was the 2005. And he went on to do well in the 31 car for RCR, had four wins and everything. So to see that This guy, Carl Edwards, right, an unproven (laughs) driver at the time, ends up being an upgrade. That surprised me to look back on and say that a young Carl Edwards was an upgrade from a a prime entering Jeff Burton. Explain that.
1: Let's consider where Roush Racing was and, and what that organization meant to NASCAR during that time. On its roster, they had a living legend in Mark Martin. They had... A, uh, two champions and Matt Kenseth and Kurt Busch and Kurt also sufficed as the young driver on their roster. And then they had Jeff Burton, as you mentioned, entering a point in his career where his production is supposed to be bountiful, but it's what they lacked, which is why they let Jeff Burton walk out the door and they lacked sponsorship. They, they could not sell jeff burton if you remember during that season i think in the atona 500 he was sponsored by the nba or maybe it was like the nba on tnt but it was the nba all-star game on his car and for those first few weeks it was just kind of a, a revolving door of sponsors but they couldn't find anything finite for him and i and i don't know i don't know if this was A personality thing. I don't know if the the number that they were asking for was too high, but they came to an agreement with Burton, let him out of the ride early. Burton went to Richard Childress Racing, where he served as an upgrade for them over Johnny Sauter in the America Online car, uh, and then eventually uh, replaced Robbie Gordon in the 31. But Carl Edwards was this young, Energetic guy that they took a big bet on, and he was he was the kind of bet that you make when you have nothing else to lose. <laughs> this car was a blank white number ninety nine car. I mean, if they're gonna go out of business, you might as well take a big swing. And to Jack Roush's credit, he's he's ran some cars with no sponsorship or just a Ford sponsorship. So credit to him; he he's never been afraid to do this. But this one, he hit a home run. Immediately, Carl Edwards was good. His 13-race sample size in 2004 ranked 12th in the series in peer. And the next season, he not only... One practically immediately. I think it was the fourth race of the season at Atlanta, but he attracted sponsorship, multiple sponsors between Office Depot and Ortho Lawn and Garden. And at one point, Jeff Smith, then the team president, uh, and this was getting close to the, the 08 recession called Carl Edwards recession proof. <laughs> everyone wanted to, everyone wanted to be in the <laughs> Carl Edwards. Business and the and and not only that, not only what he meant to the organization, which was sustained sponsorship after his arrival, but consider the success. There were two seasons in which he led the Cup Series in peer. There were moments in his career where a serious argument could be made that he was the best race car driver on the track. Uh, now, I, I wrote recently about him for the Athletic. It was a wonky career. Uh, even, even during his time with Joe Gibbs racing, he was not an efficient passer and his production, um, certainly had highs and lows throughout his career. But when he was on his game, oh, it was a sight to behold. And it all stemmed from this move, just a realization that we can't sell the driver we have, even though he's good, we've got to shake things up and Carl Edwards proved true.
0: Did Roush get lucky here? I say that only because people don't they may not remember that Roush used to have this thing called the Gong show where they brought in all sorts of talent and, and prospects and and ran them through and, and you know had them on the track to see who was the best and they really had an organization that that focused on bringing up prospects. So I mean, did they just strike gold with Carl Edwards or did they see something here or a little bit of both?
1: I will answer this as someone who has been an integral part in hosting a driver combine in my life. Driver combines are terrible. They <laughs> tell you very little. And of course, Roush got lucky with Carl Edwards. Come on. They, yes, of course. Like if, if you're just grading somebody on how they do on 20 laps on an empty racetrack, is that anything like what we see on, on Sundays on race day? No, it's not. So yeah, they, they got a little bit lucky, but they put him in a position to succeed. They put him in the truck series first. And that was gonna be a filtering system. And and to uh to Carl's credit, he performed there. And it was while he was in the truck series, because he didn't really make an Xfinity series leap before he went to the Cup series. He was kind of straight out of trucks, but it was when he was in the truck series, is when Jack Roush anointed him Mark Martin's successor. So the the Roush organization at that time held the Truck Series in high regard and did trust their process because that also yielded Kurt Busch. He went straight from Trucks to Cup without competing in the Xfinity Series. Carl was close to Kurt in age. This just represented the next step in that process's evolution.
0: Uh, only a few people will get this, but I remember David, if you were a Yahoo fantasy player back in what, 2004, 2005, uh, the game is set up into tiers. So like C-list drivers. And since Carl Edwards was a fill-in, nobody really knew him. Uh, he was a C-list driver and you got nine starts out of this C-list driver that performed so well. I rode Carl Edwards to a championship because he was in that white 99 car and on the C-list, he gave, he, he put in some really good fit. Finishes, and it helped anybody play in that game. So some people will remember that. So thank you, Carl Edwards.
1: <laughs> when we're able to draw Carl Edwards out of seclusion to be a guest on this podcast, <laughs> we're going to have, you're going to have to tell him that story. Can't wait.
0: Can't wait. All right. Next up on the list, 2009 Hendrick Motorsports upgraded from Casey Mears to Mark Martin. I picked this one specifically because I want to hear David talk about Casey Mears and, uh, That's it. For my own entertainment, I want to hear (laughs) – I'm not saying you have a disdain for him, David, but Uh. whenever he gets brought up on the podcast or the fact that he was a Hendrick driver, uh, it sets something off in you. So let's go back again. Casey Mears. uh, Hendrick upgraded to Mark Martin from Casey Mears. And this was, you know, Mark Martin, who could have retired in 2005. You know, they had a whole rocking chair ceremony with him and Rusty, all this stuff. But Mark Martin comes back and becomes a winner and a title contender in a Hendrick Motorsports. Were you more surprised Mears was even on HMS in the
1: first place? uh, (laughs) Yes, (laughs) you can (laughs) say that. Uh, I I vividly remember there was a NASCAR.com headline and graphic Proclaiming it had Gordon Johnson, Earnhardt Jr., and Casey Mears, and it proclaimed it the dream team. And I even read it then. I was like, "Well, then Casey Mears is clearly Christian Leitner here on this on this version oh, of the David. dream team." <laughs> I, I listen, listen, listen. I I have I have nothing personally against Casey Mears, but oh my goodness, I mean, he look he got a long leash from a lot of different organizations, but look. Rick Hendrick realized that he needed someone to steady the ship, right? Consider where this team was at in 2008, this number five team. Casey Mears was struggling and he had a young crew chief named Alan Gustafson, who at the time, I think the jury was still out in hindsight that wasn't true. He did win races with a 20-year-old Kyle Busch and then was handed Casey Mears. And I mean, looking back, that was probably the best he could do. But someone like a Mark Martin, even coming in at the age of 50, is going to be someone who brings stability. And his first season with Hendrick was something. Five wins at age 50. He really took to that year's rules package that was when the COT um those benefited uh, that were willing to go slow to go fast if that makes sense it mm-hmm. just wasn't wasn't pressuring the gas too much that suited Mark Martin's style after that season it was a steep downhill for Martin uh I think the advent of the double file restart changed the nature of racing and and those mid-race pockets of aggression just doesn't suit his style but for the time that he was there just in terms of production that's why this is on this list but this team was elevated and Gustafson would later be pulled on to the number 24 cars Jeff Gordon's crew chief and later inherited Chase Elliott and he's still going strong so uh, this moment in time was sort of two rejuvenations one for Mark Martin uh, who gave him? I, I mean, what an interesting way to book in his career. Right? I don't think you know. You and I are both children of the '90s. I don't think we ever envisioned Mark Martin in a Hendrick car. No, but especially, especially Winnie. And he, yeah, and and the other, at least in terms of perception. Was Alan Gustafson, because there was a point in time where his cars weren't going fast and it could have gone the wrong way for him. And thankfully, it, it didn't. And he's now still a crew chief and producing uh, the fastest car in the NASCAR Cup Series in the year 2020. All right. Again, any time I have the opportunity to hear David talk about Casey Mears, uh, I will take it. So
0: uh, we'll always bring it up on the podcast here on Positive <laughs> Regression. Uh, next up, 2008. Joe Gibbs Racing Upgrades from J.J. Yaley to the Kyle Busch. Now, th- this one interests me, David, only because, look, J.J. Yaley is no slouch. He is a Hall of Fame-level dirt wheel, dirt open wheel racer. I mean, USAC, Triple Crown Champion. He came with a resume, but no matter what... <laughs> If Kyle, no matter who you are, if Kyle Bush replaces you, that comparison will always be there, unfortunately, no matter who you are. If, if I love doing this podcast, but if Howard Stern were to replace me, David, uh, I would not look good in comparison. You know, <laughs> it doesn't matter. So, I mean, are we staring, is, is that the case here where no matter what the comparison is, or is this another surprising that JJ J. Ailey was in the 18 in the first place? What was the backstory there?
1: You know what? It was maybe a little bit of both. Um, it's hard to have a multi-car organization just functioning on all cylinders, have stability with each car. We've seen that. I think there was a joke for years about that there were only three good Hendrick cars and then there was the other car. But this, you know, the, the mid to late 2000s was a moment in time. Joe Gibbs Racing couldn't hit on all three of their cars. They're competing for championships with Tony Stewart, on one end and on another end, they would go and get a major sponsor in FedEx and they could not attract an elite driver at that time, regardless of how hard they tried. And they, they settled for Jason Leffler, who like Yaley, a, an all-star on dirt, but in NASCAR, he was a journeyman. Um, and he was behind the wheel um of the 11. Yaley was behind the wheel of the team's flagship number 18 car while JGR was at its zenith. And he replaced a champion and Bobby Labonte. This was a weird moment for JGR. I think certainly if you look back now, it was a transitional moment uh, exiting out of the Labonte era. And maybe they didn't know at the time, but soon to be out of the the Tony Stewart business as well. But keeping stability proved difficult. So I I, I think there, there is a little bit of that, but holy moly, when does a, when does a talent like Kyle Busch just appear on the open market? Because it's inexplicable now why he was ever let go by Hendrick Motorsports. But even at the time, it was pretty hard to fathom because Kyle Bush was a stud of a prospect. I remember having conversations in middle school with some of my friends about catching the ArCA race to talk about what Kyle Bush did to frank Kimmel. Wow. i mean that was it was it, he, he was he was that kind of talent and he was with the best organization in the sport and they let him go for whatever reason we've we've heard. You know, thoughts that he, he had a bad attitude and Rick Hendrick didn't like, didn't like that. But I, I, I don't know that that's completely the case, but, but regardless, here he was. He was out in the open. Uh, Evernham Motorsports was also interested. Gen Racing, if you remember them, Ooh. they were interested in Kyle Bush. I think, you know, safe to say he made the best kick <laughs> for him. And this. This fit, this fit him, man. They, they proved successful with a brash driver and Tony Stewart. So this wasn't anything JGR hadn't experienced. They were in the process of switching to Toyota and man, that they caught that wave at the right time and everything sort of crescendoed to this point. Kyle Bush comes out, wins eight races in his first year with Joe Gibbs racing and now look at him. He is going to, in his career, as one of the best to ever do it. He's probably going to be a 20 year driver for Joe Gibbs Racing. He's the face of Toyota Motorsports um, in America, uh, certainly, perhaps the world. Um, this is this is something. This is not a transaction that you see every day. In part because talents like Kyle Busch just aren't. Out in the open. I mean, I mean, he, he, he wasn't returning to Hendrick. There wasn't, there wasn't even a will he won't. He might leave. It's, he's gone and there, there was a derby for his signature. In hindsight, that is a crazy moment. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm curious. You were, you're following NASCAR during that time. You knew of Kyle Busch. You saw him win a few times. What did you think? When he was made a free agent and what were you expecting when he got to Joe Gibbs Racing? David, remember this was a time when Hendrick was so strong that they, they were, like they were the Yankees of NASCAR,
0: right? They were just overflowing with talent all the time. So I, I, from afar, I just, you know, I was just getting, obviously I was a NASCAR fan and trying to cover it, uh, you know, and climb that ladder, but just from afar, it just felt like, that they had so much talent, it was overflowing, that they just had too much of it, right? That if they let Kyle Bush go, you know, Hendrick would always be Hendrick. It, it didn't matter who they let go because they had, uh, you know, they had Jimmy Johnson, they had Jeff Gordon, they, you know, it would always be Hendrick and they would always get uh, the top tier people, including, you know, Dale Jr. and what he was supposed to do and all that stuff. So so letting him go, I, I didn't see that as like, oh, well, Hendrick's going to fall off. This will come back to bite him. You, you didn't think that, at least back in 2008, uh, because you can only have so many drivers, right? <laughs> In your stable, so they had to go somewhere. But I, I, no way could I have envisioned Kyle Bush and what he would do over at, at Joe Gibbs Racing. Especially, you know, when you looked at it at the time with Tony Stewart being there and, and what have you. Um, certainly it was going to be an upgrade for everybody, including Kyle Bush and a great opportunity, but I, I, you couldn't envision what he was about to do. Uh, but man, like you said, it, it did work out. Uh, but looking back again, you know, with, I'm not trying to rewrite JJ Yaley's history or anything. He he did not do good things in that 18 cup car, but it seems like no matter who they had in the 18 car, if Kyle Bush was available, uh, you know, looking back at it, they would have done anything to get Kyle Bush in the car. <laughs> Doesn't matter who it was, JJ Yaley or whoever.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, if, if, if JJ Yaley had, I, I don't know, one win to his name, because if we, if we consider this, it it, it was twofold motivation. JJ Yaley was not making this car better on his own. And then also, JGR wanted Kyle Busch. So it was really two things. I, I I wonder if the motivating factors would have been different if Yaley had some initial success, similar to Denny Hamlin. He hopped in the 11 car. And he won his first race as the full-time driver in the, in the Bush clash. Uh, Yaley didn't enjoy that kind of success. He gave no reason to keep his job. If he had shown a little bit more, I wonder how that would have affected JGR going after Kyle. Because again, he was, he was the stud prospect. He'd won a few times, but whether he was about to be a superstar, I don't know if that perception was shared by everyone, but it was something that JGR clearly recognized. Something to think about.
0: All right, the final one. We actually, I'm comparing, uh we're going to put two into one here, David, because I think it tells the modern day story of where Team Penske is now. So we're going to talk first about 2010 when Brad kislowski joined, and then 2013 when Joey Logano joined, because both those drivers are still there today. So you Significant upgrades indeed. Uh, let's go back to 2010. Team Penske upgrades from David Stremme to Brad Keselowski. And for some context here, we, we know the, the, the powerhouse that Team Penske is now. A three, you know, you can call it a four-car team over there. Always threat to win. Uh, good talent producing. Championship drivers. All that stuff. Well, David, in 2009, their lineup consisted of Kurt Busch, David Stremme, and Sam Hornish Jr., uh, does not sound like the same powerhouse lineup save cup champion Kurt Busch. So there, was some, uh, there were some changes to be made over at Team Penske if they wanted to turn things around. And they went from David Stremme to Brad Keselowski. And during this time was when the economy started going south. And I don't know if there was a lack of prospects, but David, you take it from there because Brad Keselowski was certainly has certainly proved beneficial uh, in 2010 coming over there. Okay,
1: so in 2008, it was the final year that Ryan Newman was there, and he was going to leave for Stuart Haas the next year. Kurt Busch and Ryan Newman finished 17th and 18th in the point standings in Penske cars. So that's where Penske was. That is firmly... Mid pack and Newman chose to leave on his own volition. Stuart Haas was building something new that made sense for him. And Penske had this difficult time luring good drivers. There was no appeal. Roger Penske was still Roger Penske, but the proof is in the pudding and the results were not there. David Stremi was. In Alex Bowman testing purgatory, he mm-hmm. got the ride uh, a year removed from losing his ride with Chip Ganassi. And in the stopgap season, he competed for Rusty Wallace in the Xfinity series. And he was also Penske's test driver at a time when teams were testing a lot. Unfortunately for Stremi, unlike Alex Bowman, it never clicked for him the second go round. So he was there, For uh, a year, less than a year, really. When, if you consider when Penske was sniffing around Brad Keselowski, and this move was something of a poach off of Hendrick Motorsports, who had multiple opportunities to put Keselowski in a Cup ride, they just didn't have uh, a room and, and and a window at the same time, and. Penske played to that. He, he dangled a ride in front of Keslowski. He created an Xfinity Series team around him. And that was the beginning of this current run of form we're seeing from the organization. Alan, you're right. I mean, these two transactions have helped build modern-day Penske. But if we home in on Brad Keslowski, he was the tipping point. Because if you consider between 2004 and 2010, Pensky's teams – Combined to average 1.3 wins per season across seven seasons. And from 2011 through 2019, that win average improved to six wins per season. Wow. And the dates line up. It started when Kazelowski walked in the door. That was the beginning of the turnaround. They hired a bunch of people. They created their Xfinity Series program and they hit the ground running. I mean, this was uh in terms of production, statistical production, a very good upgrade. I think it ranked 4th on my list, but in terms of its meaning to the organization, this uh, that's going to be calculated elsewhere. That that may not be able to be quantified because He meant a lot to this organization. It was a turnaround. It was a second lease on life for Penske after a while. I mean, it was, it was starting to sputter and this was uh, a new driver, a new attitude. And it's, it's carried up until right now, this season. They're still very fast and still built around this organization that brad keselowski helped point in the right direction
0: yeah upgrades in in many senses of the word now the other half of the the penske equation uh where they are now was 2013 when team penske upgraded from aj allmendinger to joey logano if you remember the circumstances behind this uh it was a aj allmendinger was in the 22 Penzoil oil car and w- was I mean I felt I mean looking back at it David I remember that season uh you know he, things were looking up I think he finished second in Martinsville we know what he can do at road courses but it, it seemed like someone who was uh rising to the level of the car they were in right I mean it was a good organization the best opportunity he'd ever had in Cup AJ Elmendinger. and it, it felt like to me anyway he was he was at least rising to that occasion it was on an upward trajectory and then he uh gets popped for a failed drug test which he attributed to an Adderall pill that he took Uh, It ended his uh, stint in his career at Team Penske, and then lo and behold, that was midway through the season, I think in Daytona, and then come next season, uh, young hotshot Joey Logano is out at JGR, or as he told me once, he was offered a full-time nationwide ride and no longer a Cup Series ride. Yes, that's uh, how he put it, and suddenly he becomes a free agent, and he joins Team Penske and it was off to the races from there. A.J. Allmendinger to Joey Logano, one of your top upgrades, David.
1: I mean, I can trace this back further because it is amazing, this this run of fortune the 22 car had. The, the 22 car and the Shell Pennzoil sponsorship was built around Kurt Busch. And if if Busch hadn't gone on a tirade and a TV interview, he wouldn't have been fired. And A.J. Allmendinger would not have gotten probably the best ride that he ever had. And if Almendinger hadn't tested positive for Adderall, he wouldn't have been suspended and replaced ultimately by Logano. And if Logano wasn't being pushed out the door <laughs> by Joe Gibbs Racing for Matt Kenseth, I get it. It's Matt Kenseth, but man, JGR's kicking themselves over that one now. Logano would not have been available. So a series of weird occurrences that led to this. Uh, I'm, I mean, it's astounding, really, when you think about it. This is what I quantified as the best driver upgrade of the last 20 seasons, and that isn't much of a knock on Almendinger, who went on to be a driver upgrade at his next stop at JTG Doherty, as much as it is a testament to the pure production ability of Joey Logano. He's led the Cup Series in pier twice. And those seasons came in years two and three Mm. at Penske, which helps in raising the, uh, this, the production rating on this upgrade. And he's won a championship and he did all of this before the age of 30. He is not only the present for Penske, but he represents the organization's future. Uh, and similar to what I said about Kyle Bush and JGR, but Logano might be at Penske for 20 years when all is said and done. And at that point, it will be absolutely wild to think that he was once on the scrap heap, told to accept a, a nationwide ride or, or be free. Uh, man, that is, that is one JGR has to be kicking themselves over. Um, but very shrewd. Of Penske to recognize his talent, uh, understand that he was available. I know there were folks trying to push Sam Hornish in that car. There were folks trying to push Justin Allgaier in that car, and Penske chose the younger option, the one with the most upside. Again, a stud prospect, Joey Logano was talked about on ESPN. He was compared to LeBron James and Tiger Woods, saying that he was going to be the the talent that transcends NASCAR. Um, and you know what, from, from a talent standpoint, he, he can be one of the greats. I mean, things, things are going to have to bounce his way, but he's certainly well on his way. He is oh, right now know. is a, about a, as well-rounded of a driver as you can find. And certainly, uh, an upgrade worth all the risk considering Penske didn't have anybody in that seat and Lugano didn't have a ride. So this really was an instance of two parties just really needing one another coming together and creating something great
0: yeah and that's why when i look back at the at the five or six that i chose here david when and all the research you did about driver upgrades uh, is there any one consistency i mean tony stewart to clint boyer i mean tony stewart was retiring so you had to find somebody right uh jeff burton was going on at greener pastures because of sponsor issues uh mark martin was available kyle bush was available Uh, you know, they, they get Brad Kozlowski over at Team Penske. Some of this may have been, you know, Carl Edwards, a luck, right? Or, you know, Brad Kozlowski, good scouting. Or or, are there any, you know, themes to any of this right here?
1: Especially for the upgrades you picked, uh, maybe for the exception of Almendinger for Logano, but all of them represented a cutting of losses because of an obvious opportunity to upgrade. You know, for Hendrick, it wasn't working with Casey Mears and Mark Martin wanted to drive full-time again. Uh, For Roush, they could not sell sponsorship around Jeff Burton, so they let him hit the market and they threw a Hail Mary with a young Carl Edwards. But consider when Hendrick had Mark Martin in the five car and the production was starting to wane, They had Keselowski as a development driver in their fold, and I'm sure that they wanted to promote Brad Keselowski to a cup ride, but they weren't ready or willing to eat the remainder of Mark Martin's contract to do it. And I would assume it's because he still brought them something of value. Maybe it was wisdom and car setup. Maybe it was his leadership. I don't know, but if he was just truly bad, Hendrick would have been motivated to say, okay, it's not working, let's bring in the kid and let's see if this is better. That was an upgrade that didn't happen because there weren't two motivating factors to do it. Perhaps teams in this situation should be more shrewd and start agreeing to these upgrades when there's only one thing motivating them to do it. But the pattern here suggests that these moves only materialize when there are two motivating factors and that thinking i think might be flawed
0: interesting stuff great subject matter great list again available on the athletic for all 20 of them but uh, I, I like the five i picked because uh, they were they were entertaining and, and they also apply to today good stuff david Don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We are available no matter your device. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That stuff just it helps in spreading the word. We do notice, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, make sure you send them to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. You know we love to answer them. David, I know you're working hard because we just talked about all your hard work, so what are you working on for the future?
1: This week I'm writing on the athletic, uh writing about Mark Donohue's lone NASCAR win coming in 1973. I explored what that win and his career overall meant for the quality of auto racing in America. And if you know anything about Mark Donohue, you know who his team owner was, and then it, it all starts to crystallize. But uh, what a fascinating figure, and it was a thrill to write about him. Uh, I also interviewed IMSA president John Doonan this week. We discussed his first year as series president. 2020 is it. Uh, what a year to be a president. Uh, how he's shaping his first year around the COVID-19 pandemic, and his immediate goals for pushing sports car racing to a younger generation of fans. It was an interesting chat, um, and both of these were fun pieces to write. So, be sure to, uh, to check them out on the athletic when you have a chance.
0: All right. Good stuff. And, uh, make sure you continue to watch the Fox family for all your NASCAR coverage. We have race Hub still. We're doing it from our homes, but uh, a lot of great team still putting it together, uh, Monday through Thursday, uh, 6 p.m. Eastern on FS1. Uh, check out my Twitter because we did a, a draft this week, uh, in honor of the NFL draft, of course. And we had Larry Mack and Ricky Craven and Drew Blickensdurfer drafting their best team and, uh, Bob Pockers and I got to, uh, evaluate and uh, make fun in some points, uh, some of their picks. So make sure you go back and look for that. But also, this weekend, racing still taking off uh, Talladega, baby. It's going to be fun. So make sure you watch that on Sunday. And as always, thank you guys for listening to us. We appreciate all you listening out there, especially during the strange time without racing, but we still have plenty to talk about. So make sure you reach out to us. Uh, we love talking to you. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cabana. this is Positive Regression.